0: Welcome to Res Talk, your source for the latest news, opinions, and training from top building performance, rating, and auditing experts. Here's your host, committed building science enthusiast, and registered professional engineer, Bill Spohn.
1: Welcome back to another episode of the Res Talk Podcast. Changes in consumer buying patterns and preferences are a constant topic in every market, especially housing. So how are the consumer sentiments changing due to disruptive technologies, yet alone the changes brought about in a world dealing with a pandemic? What are some of the new areas that building professionals and manufacturers need to learn about and act upon? Well, today's guest, Sarah Gutterman, has some perspectives to share with us. See, Sarah lives on a mountain, both physically and metaphorically. From her home in Hinsdale County, Colorado, where she is a county commissioner, to the mountain of data that comes from her entrepreneurial activities with GreenBuilder Media, Sarah will outline for us today some trends, as well as permanent changes that are impacting the building market. We're going to learn about what demographic is the number one influencer in the building market and what they're looking for. And Sarah will also provide some insights into how the pandemic is influencing both the residential and commercial building markets. We'll discuss modular and panelized construction techniques, as well as ADUs, and a brilliant idea on how to repurpose excess commercial space. Now stick around to the end to hear about the two key trends that need our attention. Sarah, good afternoon. Good
2: afternoon, Bill.
1: Thanks for joining us here. and. It's a very interesting story. I think something you have to talk about here today. It's about the consumer buying patterns and preferences and things that are changing very quickly because of coronavirus. And on top of that, other disruptive technologies that are happening all around us. The building professionals and manufacturers, product manufacturers have a lot of different pressures and just don't know where to look. And perhaps from your position, you can help us understand a little bit more about that. But let's first have you tell us a little bit about your background, please.
2: Sure. Well, first of all, Bill, thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here and uh, really nice to talk with you and to represent ResNet in this conversation. I started my career as an entrepreneur and then went into venture capital in the 90s and early 2000s after getting an MBA. And I bring that up because we did mostly telecom infrastructure, but I was in Boulder, Colorado. And so we got to invest in some organic foods and natural retail companies which is where I learned some really smart people how to create companies that were simultaneously sustainable and profitable. And I knew that that was my calling. I also was able to learn about market transformation from them because they, and we were able to take organic foods and natural products back then from what was really considered to be very crunchy and scary Hmm. to something that was massively and rapidly adopted. And so I left venture capital in 2002 met my co-founder of Green Builder Media, Ron Jones, who's well known as one of the early pioneers in green building in 2004. And we started Green Builder Media in 2005. And the rest is kind of history with respect to the company. But what we saw back then, which was true, and really in many ways continues to be true, is we really were looking for the white space and the opportunity for disruptive innovation. It's really the hallmark of Green Builder Media. We constantly are trying to raise the bar on ourselves, on our partners, on the industry, looking around the corner to see what's coming next, how we can make the built environment more sustainable, what are the innovations that are transforming markets, whether that's technology or building science practices, even codes and regulations, although most people wouldn't consider those to be very Mm -hmm. innovative. But yet. At the same time, you they you know, change. you look now at yeah. what's happening with the 2021 code and it's really driving change and the adoption of net zero products. But sometimes that innovation comes in the form of shifting consumer demands.
1: What's sort of the perspective of Green Builder Media? It's media, it's not just a magazine. What is it? Can you tell us a little bit more about what that is actually?
2: So we are the nation's leading media company focused on green building and sustainable living. We have a broad spectrum of media and communications channels, so online, mobile, digital, social, Email, RSS feed, and print media. In fact, our flagship publication, Green Builder Magazine, which is where we started 16 years ago, is still our, our flagship and only print publication. Uh, we have it online as well, of course. But uh, probably not surprisingly, nowadays, the bulk of our communications is through the digital media, content marketing programs, and social media. We also do a wide spectrum of demonstration projects that we call our Vision House series. We do live events when live events are actually feasible and viable, not right now, so we're doing virtual events right now. And then last but not least, we have this really cool suite of market intelligence and data services that we call Cognition Smart Data. So we are media, but as you can see, we also do a lot more than that.
1: Absolutely. Very broad palette of offerings. From this, you call it Cognition Services. What was that last one?
2: Yeah, cognition, smart data.
1: Smart data. Okay. So perhaps that's where you're able to like maybe stand up on one of those mountains that you live in and look down it and see uh-huh. where, where are some of the changing patterns coming from? So what's the genesis of the change and what impact would they have on the builder, the raider, that kind of our community?
2: Cognition is indeed, as I mentioned, our data service, and it's a proprietary technology platform that we've built to mine web and social media content using contextual filters and parameters that we've taught to it so that the data that we get back is super focused and refined and laser-targeted on the built environment. And then we also port in data from our audience, which is a hybrid trade and consumer audience that is comprised of early adopters and first movers. So when we look at our audience's behavioral patterns and engagement patterns, it's really indicative of where a mainstream is heading in the next 6, 12, 24 months. So um, that's just a little bit of context for how and Mm -hmm. where we collect the data. But in terms of the shifts in consumer expectations that we're seeing right now that are placing new demands on building professionals, on manufacturers, really on on everyone in the building industry and specifically the housing sector. I think first and foremost the growing ethic of sustainability which was happening even before the coronavirus and growing interest in everything from energy efficiency moving towards net zero, electrification to healthy home and connected living that had already started to grow in consumer interest and adoption but the coronavirus was really a catalyst to bring topics like healthy home and comfort and performance really to the forefront, even more so. And so it's interesting because I think we're seeing with the coronavirus, there's so many dynamics ranging from people saying, well, I was going to go to Italy, but I'm not. And instead, I'm going to put that money into my home or I'm going to buy a new home. It's really propelled the housing market. Some specific things that we're seeing really because of The coronavirus. First of all, the concept of home more than ever has really kind of evolved where people see home as a sanctuary and a safe space that now conjures up these feelings of well being and belonging and health, peace of mind. So they're actually making home buying and home remodeling decisions accordingly to create sanctuary spaces inside of their homes or in their outdoor living areas. We're seeing a much larger interest in a connection with nature, whether that's patios and decks and porches or rooftop decks, or even sometimes bringing the outside inside with like living walls or just potted plants, things like that. Mm -hmm. But that's also making, it's also driving choices around new home buying and the amenities that consumers are looking for in terms of walking trails and community gardens. And then I think we've heard about this a lot in the news, but we are absolutely seeing the flight from denser urban markets to secondary and tertiary markets where home buyers can get more bang for the buck, have more of a connection with nature, have more room to move. And so all of these things are really kind of shifting the demand or the trends in home buying, whether those are new or existing homes.
1: How long is this effect going to be sustainable itself? Do you think do you have any perspective on that? Is this been a permanent shift, like it shifted into new gear, or is it just a trend that's gonna come back out?
2: I think it is a systemic change. I do not uh-huh. think it's a short term trend. I think it's a long term shift. And here's why. First of all, because if you look who at the audience segment that has claimed the number one influencer position. In the home buying and home remodeling spaces, both of those sectors, it's millennials and it's older Gen Zs. Now, this is a really interesting group. For the most part, the most active home buyers in this group are dual income, college educated couples that have been living in denser. Situations, whether that's in urban areas or apartment buildings, and they want more space, either because they have started or about to start families. Families, a lot of them have the money to buy a home, or they're actually getting supplemental funding from their parents or their grandparents, Hmm. who are saying, "We want you out of my house," or "We want you out of the city," or "We want you out of an apartment." And all of this, of course, is being facilitated by the ability to work remotely. And if you look at millennials and older Gen Zs, they're digital natives. They're totally at home working and communicating online. And a lot of them have actually worked remotely for their entire careers. Um, So there's nothing new for them. And so I think that those elements are combining to really make this a a systemic, a long-term systemic change as opposed to a short-term trend or a fad.
1: Now, now, you mentioned something there about working remotely, and, and then I just kind of reflect back on the title of your group there, Green Builder. Do you also get involved in anything with commercial buildings, Is there, or is it mainly residential?
2: We do both. Residential has been our bread and butter since our inception 16 years ago, but we certainly cover commercial buildings in terms of our editorial, and we have a sister publication, Digital, called Code Watcher. And that obviously covers both commercial and residential. And especially right now, I just, since you brought up commercial and we're talking about trends and shifts in the market, it's really interesting because if you look at this transformation of how and where we work, when we survey our audience, we got about 75% of our respondents who said, that they don't want to go back to an office full-time, maybe one day a week or two days a week or for essential meetings. But for the most part, they like working from home. They're more productive. They have a better work-life balance. They like to work in their own space. They love ditching the commute. That was a huge element, a huge factor. On the flip side of that, if you look at what executives are saying, business executives are saying right now, they can save a lot of money Mm -hmm. (laughs) by downsizing corporate offices and corporate campuses. And so I think that there's going to be a lot of corporate leases over the next couple of years that are coming up for renewal that are not going to get renewed or spaces are going to get downsized significantly. And I wonder if that really poses a real opportunity for us to solve our affordable housing oh, wow. crisis, yeah, where we can convert some of those commercial spaces into you know, affordable housing units.
1: That's the first time I've heard that, and that's brilliant. The space is already built, and now it's just a uh, repurposing the space.
2: Well, I don't get called brilliant often, but I'm always happy when I do. So thank you. <laughs> I'll take it. (laughs) very very good.
1: I have a brother-in-law who works for a technology company, manufacturer, big worldwide in the nuclear industry. And they did a poll recently. Everybody's been at home since like March 17th or so. They did a poll recently out of 3,000 people that work on the campus. And four people said they want to come back to work. Wow, that's that's
2: amazing. That's
1: a very, very small number. And just personally myself, we're in the process of building a, high-performance home and put a lot of thought into that. And this all happened, the planning process started before COVID, but I'm getting a lot more questions from people as I start to talk about my topic, just in private conversations and people starting to refer me, that I'm seeing an uptick in interest in this area and sustainable, et cetera. Do you have any idea the topic of what they call them, accessory dwelling units, is that anything Mm -hmm. that shows up in your trends?
2: Yes, absolutely. I will say that with a caveat. The largest demand right now for accessory dwelling units or ADUs is in California. And that's for a variety of reasons. First of all, because housing is so expensive there. Second of all, because they have to do so much rebuilding because of the Mm -hmm. massive and catastrophic wildfires and flooding and mudslides and things like that, that they've been experiencing over the years. And they have some codes and a regulatory environment that is facilitating the adoption of ADUs more so than in other areas across the country. ADUs are interesting as supplemental living or working spaces, especially if we're starting to look at remote working and not Mm -hmm. having to redo spaces in your home, but just having these small offices that are separate from your home. I think that feels like a model that's very feasible for a lot of folks who maybe need a little bit of distance from actually being inside their home. The other thing that's really driving or the other couple of things that are driving adoption of ADUs is multi-generational living. So mm-hmm. having parents move into ADU so they don't have to go into assisted living facilities. And then I mentioned rebuilding and just kind of resilient housing and the concept of the fact that we, because of climate change, are seeing Communities across the planet, but in the U.S. from coast to coast, being decimated, whether it's by wildfire or hurricanes or superstorms or tornadoes or flooding. And so, these are, in many cases, they're, we'll say, quicker fixes. There are still some issues with ADUs. If you look at certain codes and regulations that have that, that prohibit structures under certain sizes mm-hmm. on lots and then you still do need your infrastructure with an adu it's not like sure. you can just deliver a box and plop it down on of property and so a lot of folks that are intrigued say by tiny homes find out that yeah you can buy a tiny home but you still have to have a foundation and sewer and septic and water and utilities and right. power and there's some costs that go along with that, but I do think that the ADUs have a, a great application with respect to some of the things I, I just talked about. So there's ADUs, and then there's also the concept of off-site, uh, prefab uh, modular, and panelized yeah. wall systems, yep. modular, exactly. And I kind of think of that a little bit separate from ADUs, just because ADUs have a certain very specific application and manifestation in in my mind. But when I think about modular prefab panelized wall systems, even alternative building systems like structural insulated panels and insulated concrete forms or SIPs and ICFs, we're starting to hit the inflection point in terms mm-hmm. of price parity and market adoption because of soaring lumber prices. And I don't know if you saw recently, but there was a statistic that was released that said that because of these soaring lumber prices, the average price of a home right now, of a stick frame, conventional built home, not using advanced cleaning or anything like that, has increased by $16,000 just because of the increasing lumber costs. So when you look at that, all of a sudden. Some of these alternative options, whether it's systems like ICFs and SIPs or panelized wall systems or entire prefab homes, they become a lot more intriguing.
1: You're preaching the converted. The house that we're building was built in (laughs) a factory (laughs) in four modules. so It was just uh, so cool to see the amount of detail that has to come in the planning process and then the... I would say just the processes are there, just period, just having a process to do everything. I really think we were delivered something of much higher quality than any builder could have built on site. It's just because it's easier in a factory. It's just better in a factory. That's my opinion.
2: No, I agree. You have the quality control, you have the waste minimization, yeah. you have the systems optimization. You can make sure that Things are installed, you know, insulation and windows and, you know, these different, especially the building envelope systems, these are that they're controlled and they're installed precisely, which you're right, it's very difficult to do that in the field. So well, we, I always kind of smile, and when people say, "Oh, I have a faulty window, or I have a faulty faucet," right. it's not actually your window or your faucet that's faulty; it's the installation that's faulty <laughs> that's causing the leak.
1: Yeah, I think for our listeners that are raiders and builders, I said. I mean, the builders are definitely talking to them, but the raiders; these are new, intriguing areas to get involved in. I think it's a very interesting topic for raiders to pay attention to, too. All of these topics.
2: Agreed. Well, it certainly shifts the business opportunities. And I actually think that's another trend that we're seeing just in the building industry in general. I'm sure you've seen this as well, which is the enhanced digitization of the building industry. If you look, Bill, and you might know this, but if you look at all of the sectors in our economy that have adopted advanced technologies to achieve efficiencies, the building industry is second to last only above hunting and fishing. (laughs) It kind of makes me smile because, okay, maybe you get your fishing license or your hunting license online, but other than that, that's not a sector that really needs a lot of digitization. So I think that because of COVID, because of the transformation of how and where we work, because of remote working, et cetera, we are starting to see some digitization of things like inspections, appraisals. Certainly the whole home buying experience is going online online. In fact, we're seeing an uptick in people buying home site unseen, which is like mind boggling to me.
1: Yeah, ordering um,
2: yeah, exactly. And I think that's actually going to create a lot of efficiencies. And for the builders and the raiders and the other folks that can think about that in a very entrepreneurial way, I think there's going to be a lot of new business opportunities that are opening up for the folks that can be forward thinking.
1: Yeah, I think access to more data, perhaps in advance of the rating or the inspection for a rater can uh, allow them to do the work more efficiently and perhaps at a higher level of quality. Yeah. You also forwarded me some your bio, some information, and I see you recently became a county commissioner for Hinsdale County in Colorado. Can you tell us a little bit about what drove you to that? I think there's probably a story there.
2: I uh, will say it's my type A personality. When I kind of look around and I'm not happy with current leadership or the way things are going, I can't help myself. I just have to dive in. And so the county commissioner position that I took over, it's not a full four-year term. I actually stepped in for a commissioner who resigned. And so it's only about a year and a half term, which is good because to be quite honest with you, it's hard to balance, you know, sure. two full-time jobs between Green Builder Media and being a commissioner and being a county commissioner in the time of COVID Is really interesting. I truly believe that things happen for a reason, and I believe that there was a reason why I was meant to be a commissioner during this time, and it's actually because in February. I had just come back from the ResNet conference where I had spent time with Sam Rashkin from the DOE and some other Mm -hmm. friends from the federal government and some really super smart folks who go to the ResNet conference and think very critically about, thoughtfully about the future. (laughs) And they're very tapped into scientific research and data. And Sam and some other folks said to me, stuff is going down you need to be aware, like we're being ordered not to travel. This is not the message that's necessarily going out to the public and the mass media, but just keep your eyes open because stuff's going down. And so I came back to my County and I said, we have to lay down the law, and we have to be wow. just super careful because this this was during the time when I don't know if you remember, but in Colorado, uh, some of the ski areas like Crested Butte, which is just up the road from us, and Vail and Aspen were seeing some of the initial outbreaks, and it was scary to see what was going on, you know. And it was all because visitors were coming to play, and nobody knew what this COVID thing was. So, because we're in rural Southwestern Colorado, we're actually kind of equidistant from Telluride and Crested Butte. So it's it's just a magical place. It's mm. absolutely stunning. But we just had to be super careful because we have one little medical clinic. If we have three cases, we're overwhelmed. So oh. you had to make some pretty interesting decisions. But it's for me, it's been a really interesting experience because the thing that brings people to where I live is nature, is just our Mm -hmm. absolutely majestic, abundant, primal, untouched, unspoiled, massive amounts of nature, wilderness area. Actually, where I live in Hinsdale County, we're the least populated county in the lower 48. So you don't really come here for like the theater or the culture. You come here if you love hiking and biking and fishing and skiing and being outside or just sitting by the river or looking at trees or bird watching. So for me and my role as commissioner, it's really been about how can we bolster economic growth while simultaneously protecting our environment?
0: What a
1: difficult challenge, but admirable that you took it on.
2: Well, thank you.
1: Has the county commissioner role changed your perception? Can you think about how it might have changed your perception before you got into the role? Like what you do with Green Builder Media. Has anything else something come evolved out of that?
2: I, mean, I think it's been interesting to be involved in local government because for as many great and lofty ideas as a federal government may come up with, I think that at the end of the day, stuff happens at the, the local and the sure. state level. And it's the mayors and the the governors that execute ultimately policies and programs. And it's been interesting to really be a part of that process and to see where things get bogged down and where things can be expedited because you can have all the theories in the world, but unless you can figure out how to bring your community together and execute on a plan, it's just going to remain a theory.
1: Sure. A theory and a theory all too. <laughs> Same time.
2: We covered a lot of ground in our
1: topic today, our discussion today. Are there any bullet points you want to leave the listeners with in terms of some of the things that they can use to grow their business, the raiders and the builders and the appraisers with these essential market trends? What kind of salient points can you provide? Just a couple.
2: A couple of things. The builders and the raiders and other professionals that are in ResNet's network and are likely the audience for this program, Mm -hmm. clearly they're thinking as thoroughly about energy as anyone else in our country. But I think there are two huge opportunities that if folks are thinking in an entrepreneurial way, there's a lot of business growth opportunity. And the first is healthy homes. We're a little bit in the wild west right now with respect to healthy homes in terms of there's not really a lot of comprehensive certification or programs. Of course, the EPA has Indoor Air Plus, which is growing. It's not quite like Energy Star in terms of adoption or awareness, but certainly it's growing. But I think, and then there's some interesting technologies to start monitoring indoor air quality and proactively solve for IAQ to improve the health of homes. For example, Panasonic has a system called Cosmos. Uh, Brown has a system they're releasing as well where there's monitors and sensors on the front end. And if toxins are sensed, it kicks on vent fans or ERVs or facilitates sure. fresh air exchange. So I think there's some emerging things in the IAQ and healthy home space that are here. But I think that's an exploding category. And then the other huge area of opportunity is water. What I always like to say is, if you're in the building industry, if you live in a home, or if you breathe, you should be paying attention to water. (laughs) (laughs) Because especially for those of us in the the building industry, it has the potential to be the number one limiting factor to growth. Because if there is no water, there will be no permits of any kind. And we're already starting to see things like water kind of tap fees increase like along the front range here in Colorado. Um mm-hmm. Fort Collins, you know, through Denver down to Colorado Springs, water tap fees have increased by 400% just in the last couple of years. We're starting to see moratoriums on permits in places like Bainbridge Island off of Seattle. Like it's an island for heaven's oh. sakes, right? People who think that you know, it's surrounded yeah, by yeah. water, but it had a moratorium because it didn't have access to fresh and potable water to support development needs. And so I think that water is going the way of energy. I know that ResNet is coming out with its own water rating program. Sure. There's also the WERS program for energy raters in particular. We'll figure out how to be water raters as well, because that's the next big frontier.
1: And my summary in my mind is energy, but healthy homes and water. That's the takeaway here from our discussion. And it's interesting. The Both of those topics hit home for me. We're using a, a mechanically uh, conditioning ERV in the house that we're building. So it's one of those things that actually, like the Cosmos and the Brone system, does take action when the sensors tell it to. And it's based upon activity versus just kind of stock numbers. So that's very interesting for me. And then the other one is water literally before you called, I got a call from my driller because we've not been able to get water on site and we can't move in. The Mm. house is ready. We can't move in. Wow! So this is the third well that's being drilled and he had some good news for us. So I'll save that for another episode.
2: Oh, good. Well, congrats. That's great. Um, We were actually going to do a community, one of our Vision House projects. We were supposed to do a community up in Fort Collins and we have not, we're supposed to start on it this summer and we haven't been able to start because we've been struggling with water and reasonable access, reasonably priced access to water. Very good. So it's real, it's here.
1: Yeah, yeah. It's yeah. something I never would have thought of before. Yeah. Well, thank you, Sarah. This was a fast paced, you talk fast, <laughs> discussion. <here>. <laughs> <laughs> No, you covered a lot of ground. Maybe people can listen to it like 0.75 or 0.8. I'm just teasing, but you got a lot to say, obviously, and you've had a lot of experience and um, really uh, enjoyed covering this topic with you today.
2: Well, thank you so much, Bill. I appreciate you having me on the program. And uh, as I said, it's always a pleasure to participate with and support ResNet. Take care and congrats on your water. Thank you very much.
1: I want to thank you for listening to this episode of the Res Talk podcast, and it's a very interesting discussion here with Sarah from Green Builder Media. If you're a pro in the building market, you should surf on over to Resnet.us/professional to learn more or to join the email list. You also find Resnet on Facebook or Twitter. The quote for today is from Dave Davies from the Kinks: "I think things happen for a reason." If you're interested in feeding back to Resnet on what you heard here today you'd like to hear a new topic covered or just have a general question, please send an email to info at resnet.us. If you've not subscribed, please consider doing so. And as always, thank you for listening to ResTalk.
0: Thanks for listening to the Res Talk podcast. This podcast is hosted by Bill Spohn and is a production of ResNet, the Residential Energy Services Network. The best way to listen to this podcast is to subscribe on an iPhone using the podcast app or on an Android device by downloading the Stitcher app and searching for Res Talk. If you are willing, a review on iTunes of the podcast app will help others find the show and would be very much appreciated. We look forward to talking again soon on Res Talk.